So, Bob, I thought I would read to you some uh, psychology and counseling news stories and hear what you think about them. What do you say? Sure. Sounds good. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor in Seattle. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school and a therapist myself here in Seattle. And people can find you at bobgettle.com. That is correct. And if you are looking for an excellent therapist to help you with uh, DBT things or with your life transitions or you are in a couple that is having conflict, then seek Bob Gettle for help. Thank you. So these are articles. I just went to Google News and typed in counseling and psychology, and these were the first hits. So, so let's, let's go to here. For, this one's from Psychology Today. Mm. Are, are today's young adults becoming generation lonely? Um, so do, do you think that uh, kids today are, are more lonely than they were before? Might be. Yeah, how so? The devices. Because of the devices. Yeah, yeah. and the social media. Yeah. Because they don't tend to be connecting even though they sort of are. They can. I think it depends on the person, right? Right. There are people who, say, use Instagram a lot, and they post a lot of pictures of them um, doing things like, I went to the store today, and I bought a burger or something. And they have, like, thousands of responders or something. But they don't really feel connected to these other human beings. Right. Whereas there are other people who use Instagram, and they... Uh, post a picture of a burger they bought and their three best friends are commenting or texting them or whatever. Right. And they can feel connected. So to me, I think that uh, it's a, to me, it's a, it's, it's sort of an old person thing to say that, you know, today's <laughs> youth, it's like, cause it looks impersonal to them, right. you know, like, cause, cause to most old people, um, and I, not, and, you know, we're both old, but I'm going to put you in the category of a person who doesn't use your phone for and social media. Oh, yeah, I'm older old. <laughs> yeah. You're younger old. Yeah. Um, I uh, I use social media mm-hmm. at times to connect. Like, like I will post a picture of myself at a event or something on Facebook, and my family will comment oh, right, right yeah. away. Right. They'll just be like, oh, my God, what are you doing there? And I'll, you know, and in the past, before right. social media and phones, I would have done the event, which would have been great, but I would have had to have wait, waited a couple months till the next time I saw my family and maybe mention that I went and have to kind of describe it to them or something right. rather than my mom and dad literally knowing exactly what I'm doing every moment of every day if I, if I post about it, you know right, what I mean? Right, right, And to me, that's the enjoyment of Facebook. I, I consider that like a powerful social experience for me that um, I, you know, if or if I'm eating a burger and I like it and I post about it, then I can get this and vice versa. When, right. when my mom posts something, I can, like she'll be with, my um, nieces and nephews or something and she'll take a picture and I'll be like, oh, they're at the park. That, And I can, I know what's happening. I can feel, I can kind of be there virtually with them in some way that I couldn't have been otherwise. Um, 
the question is as to whether or not that replaces or somehow eliminates um, in-person social activity, um, which I think, and to your point, I think can be possible for some people. Well, you know, it's really funny what you're saying, because what you're talking about is having connection just through this particular kind of media. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, you call somebody on the phone, right? And that's, that is about connection. But if I'm, say, a Kardashian and I have 15 million followers, I'm not getting any connection with these people. It's more like having my name printed in a newspaper, right. which I don't think anybody ever found connecting. Right, which I think some people, that's how they use social media, right. you know, even if they're not as famous, right? Right. And it can feel like a connection but not be a connection. I, I know someone who is profoundly profoundly lonely and has no support system and has no friends for the most part and has basically divorced herself from all of her family, but is pretty big on social media Mm -hmm. and feels very lonely overall. Uh Like the, the social media fame and reactivity that she gets from that doesn't repl- doesn't make her feel any better. Yeah. But it, it, the question is 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 that, you know, why is that, right? Well, sure. Because because and that that's why I think this this article kind of um gets good. I mean, the the title is bad be, to me because it's like, you know, um well, I guess the title's fine, but later in the article it says, which I which I want to hear what you think. It says Before you blame technology, though, listen to this. It's the culture of busyness that is keeping young people from enjoying hang time or downtime with others. The workaholic parents and baby boomer achievers apparently transmitted a cultural message that free time was verboten and all activities had to be goal-oriented. What do you think about that, Bob? I've heard the opposite said of young people. Oh, really? They tend to not have a work ethic in favor (laughs) socializing over you know, production or whatever you want to call it. But so I don't get it. Yeah, right. Well, whatever the uh, the uh, ageist notion. <laughs> Damn kids. <laughs> du jour, you know what I mean? <laughs> kids today have no work ethic. Right. All they do is socialize. Right. Or kids today don't socialize enough. They work too they hard. They work too hard. Yeah, who knows? But I, I think that this is if now the thing about this sort of thing, as people know, listen to this podcast is when you're commenting on society through history and culture through history, right. you are the brain trying to understand the brain. Right. And you are, you know, in a, in a forest and all you can see are like four trees and you're trying to understand the entire forest. There's just no way. Yeah. You just can't conceive and gather enough data. So the notion that we would know the answer to this question of are kids more lonely today than they were before is just impossible. They do studies like this, you know, but you have, what you have to do, as I've talked about in other episodes, you have to ask the people on a scale from one to 10, how lonely are you? The answer to that question is not a scientific measurement of loneliness. Plus, the notion of loneliness is a, is in and of itself a subjective experience. So in the future, one could imagine, or, or in another culture, one could imagine a situation where people have been socialized with the notion that 
everyone should have like 15 really close friends, you know, our culture doesn't have that the American culture, but you can imagine a culture where it's just like, that's, that's the norm. Like everyone values connection and good friends and, and you only have eight good friends. And so you're like, yeah, I'm lonely, you know, because I've been taught by my society that eight good friends is actually pretty substandard to the norm. And so it just depends, but are, but is that loneliness unhealthy? You know, I would say no, having eight close friends is pretty good. You're That's doing, great. you're doing pretty good yeah. in terms of what the way I, if I, if I'm understanding what they mean by good friends and, you know, in terms of what I understand about attachment and like normalcy and all that kind of stuff. But that's a whole other thing. It's like, who knows? And there's variability. So this notion of are people more lonely today is impossible to know the answer. And two, uh, rife or very risky in terms of ageist or uh, very typical ageist notions of kids today. Yeah. You know, anything bad is just attributed to kids. Like you were saying earlier, it's like, well, I've heard that kids have no work ethic. Yeah. Wait, so this article is talking about how kids have too, too good of, of a work ethic, right? You know, and um, so there's that. Isn't it funny that the implication is that my generation did it right, and these other people are flawed, and nobody's saying, "Hey, here's what I see as the strengths of kids today." It's always what's wrong with them. It's very frequently what's wrong like with it's them. Like this, this starting off with a bias. Yeah. Who who wants to study this shit? I got better shit to do. Yeah. Now, what I will say is that. The article starts off talking about social media and all this stuff and how this is causing kids to be uh, lonely, which is a very common cultural notion. But then at the end, it has a pretty good section on, wait a second, maybe it's because as a culture, we have been drifting more towards workaholism and achievement and away from uh, more healthy balance to life. Yeah, that that balances um, free time. You know, it, it is very common for uh, privileged white American uh, middle class, upper class families to have their kids in camps all summer long. Right. To have five extracurricular activities. To um, never really just have like total chill time where. Uh, completely unstructured. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You know, it could be a good thing. But um, but what I have found, and this is a legitimate gripe about people today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, someone, someone was talking to me the other day, and they were like, um, my, well, I don't know. I can't really say this in without breaking confidence. But let me just say that there, there was something that was told to me that indicated that, um, and I immediately confronted them on this, and they agreed with me, like, yeah. Uh-huh. But they indicated that uh, there's a, they had a very skewed idea of, or at least the culture they were in was giving them the idea that certain markers had to be met in their, their kids. Oh. So, you know, a six-year-old needs to be doing this. Right. And if not, then they need tutoring. And an eight-year-old needs to be doing this. And the things, the markers that they had, I was like, that's at least three or four years in advance of the expectations that were on me when I was a kid. Right. I'm not saying that 
the expectations were right or wrong. I'm just saying we're definitely drifting towards a more uh, very rigid idea of success among kids. You know, and it's weird because the thing that I that I sometimes think about is like, like, and I was I was um, ranting about this with my students uh, the other night, and it just popped in my head. I was like, so there's a wide variety of ages in the room right now because Antioch attracts the working kind of student, and so I'm like, you know, some of you are in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. So according to you know, but but no one, but you older students. You don't think that you're a loser, right? <laughs> you know, you're in a technically speaking, you've you've been held back by 30 years. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like there are there are other students in in this room. You're you're technically in what grade 17 right? You're in grade 17, 18, 19 right now. Right. And you're in the same class with people who are 30 years younger than you. You know, uh whereas imagine you're you're nine years old and you're in a class with a bunch of seven-year-olds, you know, how terrible you're supposed to feel about yourself when who cares? Who cares if you graduate from high school when you're 20? But somehow that's like one of the most, you know, humiliating, uh, indicative of your failure in, you know, things that could happen to you. Rigid. Yeah. But it's so dumb. Yeah. Uh, arbitrary. Yeah. Why would you start kids in school? I mean, there's this thing. It's like, oh, I got to get my kid in, you know, into pre-kindergarten classes on how to start on reading when they're four years old. And it's like, they'll get there. Yeah. Don't worry about it. To me, grade school is like learning how to sit in a, in a chair, you know? <laughs> the, the things you actually learn in grade school are pretty pretty fundamental, you know? Yeah. Not very complicated, and certainly, you know, it gives you a foundation. But really, what people should be concentrating on is how people emotionally regulate, right? Right. And if you're pressuring a six-year-old to achieve, 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 and giving them the message that they are not achieving and that they are definitely below the curve, uh, is uh, is extremely damaging to a twenty-five-year-old. I have students who are you know, in their 50s that are terrified of the notion that they're average, you know, terrified of the notion that they're not the best in the class. So imagine what a six-year-old goes through. Yeah, right. So your priorities, if that's the message you give to people, families and otherwise, then, you know, you're going to live a life that's going to be out of balance and might sacrifice uh, social relationships. You know, how how many parents are wringing their hands, worrying about like, my kid only has two friends, you know, uh, as opposed to how many parents are wringing their hands going, my kid is below average in reading in their class, you know, or my kid isn't going to get into Harvard, or my kid isn't going to get that scholarship while other kids are going to get it or whatever. It, you know, we're way out of whack in that way. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked, and this has been going on for, you know, 20 years of of my career. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've asked this question to parents as they are over-focusing on academics and ruining their family. You know, the kids getting Fs. And yes, absolutely, you don't want your kids to get Fs, and you want to help them not to get Fs. Sure. But what they will do is they will ruin their relationship with their teenager, and they will completely um, sacrifice their attachment with their teenager right. and in the process of trying to force a kid to do well, which 
uh, newsflash doesn't motivate them to do well in school. <laughs> when they feel like you hate them and that they're a piece of shit, uh, that's not a huge motivator to like sit down and study over the weekend. What it is a motivator for is to get out of the house and smoke weed and hang with people who actually like you, like a gang or something. Right. Anyway. So the, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've said this to parents. I would say, okay, answer this question. Would you rather have a Harvard graduate physician for your kid who's an asshole <laughs> and unhappy, or would you rather have a happy, nice uh, kid who becomes uh, a sort of partially employed janitor at a high school? Which one would you like? And I'll see parents like stunned. They don't know where to go with that because what they honestly, their knee jerk reaction is I want the Harvard physician. Yeah. And you know, okay, he's an asshole, you know, yeah. but, but I've been taught every day, every message that's been given to me is like, get this kid, how, how wonderful it is to have a kid who's a Harvard graduate physician or a high powered lawyer yeah. or a CEO, you know, um, you know, my kid's an honor student, right. you know, a bumper sticker. It's never, my kid is emotionally stable. Or my kid has, you know, because my kid's an honor student. It's basically a message of my kid is better academically than your kids. Right. There, there's not a lot of bumper stickers that I've ever seen. I've never seen one that says my kid has more friends than yours. <laughs> or my kid's more well-liked than your other kids. Right. Um, not in the, you know, manipulative sort of popularity way, but just like it's a nice fellow, you know? Yeah. And so I'll ask that question and, you know, that will be the jumping off point of just like, okay, the fact that you hesitated with that question indicates that you have lost perspective because of culture. Like it's not your fault. Yeah, right. Society has told you this. Yeah. And we are, we are the tip of the spear that is ever flying closer to doom as we uh, promote ideas around achievement and money and materialism uh, and... Um, and narcissistic the way it looks too, you know, like when Anthony Bourdain killed himself, it's so confusing to the American public because they're like, but he had it all. He was rich. He was famous. He was well liked. He had a TV show and he was genuine. You know, he's like, he could be himself. He didn't have to be all fake. Like he had it all. How could you possibly kill yourself? And it's like, Fame and TV shows and money have nothing to do with happiness. Now, if you have no money, then that can impact your happiness. But if oh, you yeah. but if you if you have like if you're it's I can't remember the the stats. It's something seventy like, grand. Okay, U.S. in the U.S. Uh, so per person, yeah. Wow, that's a lot. No, I don't know if it's per person, like per family, maybe per family. But even that boy in a town like this, hey, hey, hey. totally, yeah. Um, and I think the effect doesn't, it's not like if you're earning 60 grand, you're like yeah. terribly unhappy. No, no, it's no. It's just no. like as you move down towards 20 grand right. and you're just working all the time and yeah. never, and you're worrying, it's obviously going to impact your happiness. Right. But beyond a certain level, uh, you don't get any happier. Uh, in fact, I would contend, you know, you get, you get less happy. One, because you're likely working too much. Mm. And um, two, because um, money in my life anyway, causes me to 
make decisions to buy things that now I have to worry about. Like, like buying a boat, for example, or an RV. It's like, oh, now I have money. I can buy a boat. It's like I've watched my friends. The, the nice thing about sort of my life when it comes to materialism, you know Chris Huber, right? Sure. So he became, I, I think you know, he became rich uh, early in life. You know, when he, he's a, he's a go-getter when it comes to, um, I don't know, business, success. business stuff. Yeah. I don't even know how to say it, but very, very good at working the angles and figuring out a way to, uh, own a business and make money and do that kind of stuff. And I've just seen him make choices that were sort of just beyond my reach in terms of money. Mm-hmm. And I would, and then I would see it crash for him and I'd go, Oh, well, I'll cross that off my list. Thank you, Chris Huber, for leading the way on that disaster. <laughs> uh, one of them was a boat, uh-huh. and the other one was buying a massive house uh, on a lake. He he had a huge, mil, you know, multi million dollar house on Lake Sammamish. Oh, Sammamish, right? Uh, bought it just before the housing boom oh, or the housing oh, crash. crash. Yeah, and you know he went through all that nightmare. Mm. Um, so you know. There was a there's a number of things they did like that and it, and at the end of the day he's still Chris Huber and he you know at the height of his financial success he was the same person as he was when you know things weren't going so well yeah you know it's just same life same same impact on life same you know anyway yeah so so what do you think do you think kids today have potentially out of balance with regards to achievement versus um, free time and friend time? I have no idea. How would I even know that? You're not around kids very often? No, that's true. I'm not. Yeah. But I guess the whole, you know, somebody does a study and they say they know, that's kind of really suspicious. Right. Especially when there's other studies that say the opposite thing. uh, My contact with young people doesn't indicate that. Yeah. That the, you know, limited as it is, I don't get that sense. Right. That's the thing. Like when you actually hang out with young people, when I hang out with young people, the thing that I see is like, oh, they're exactly the same as we were. When oh, we were, yeah. You know? Yeah. They have different things. Yeah. But they talk the same. Yeah. They're, they have the same dreams and hopes. They're insecure in the same way. Yeah. Um, you know? In in some ways, I wish I was a kid today with the internet and everything. Like it just seems like it would be a, a fun. Because the one thing I, I mean, just along these lines is, my senior year in high school, I remember just being like, this is like a blank year because there, there's there's no reason for me to be alive this year because because I knew I was already accepted into the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. I knew that like the beginning of my junior year in high school, I knew that as long as I graduated with a degree, I could get D's and some F's in all of my classes, starting with the latter half, the second half of my junior year and extending through my senior year and still get into University of Washington, given my grades and my test scores. It was easier to get into UW back then. It was still hard, but it's not as hard as now. Yeah. I think the reason why it's super hard now is because Asians are flooding <laughs> the market at UW and have a much higher sort of achievement uh, index. You know, it's like supply and demand essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so my senior year, I'm like, I don't need to be in school. I don't need to try, and I'm not going to because it's illogical. Why would I try? 
because I wasn't learning anything. You know, I remember in senior year, we did this one exercise, you know, in some history class or something where we colored a a map of the United States. So we just had to color in the states to make it look like a map. Do you know what I mean? And we're, you know, I remember I'm like 18 and I'm coloring a, and I'd understand if it was like, do what you want or have some fun. But this was an assignment that we were turning in for a grade, do you know? And, uh, and I, I just remember just a lot of experience or read this book and write a book report on it. I was just like, come on. And, um, and I remember really having like nothing to do because if the internet existed then, then I probably would have turned to YouTube or something like just to do, I don't know, just, or learn, learn about stuff. You know, yeah, that was right. the other thing when we were kids, like, if you wanted to learn about something, how do you find, you went to the encyclopedia, but there right. was like, you know, three paragraphs on Switzerland or something, you know, it's right. like, you're not going to learn much from that. What if you want to learn car repair? I mean, like, yeah. you can't go on YouTube. Right. And yeah. YouTube is awesome. Yeah, I know, especially today. Yeah. It's like everything. I, any anytime, like, I, I wanted to put RAM in my laptop. Oh, yeah. And I... I th- I thought I could do it on my own. And then I had, I had trouble getting the backing off of the, and I was like, well, go to YouTube. And so I just looked up the exact model of my laptop and said, how do you take off the back? And there was someone on YouTube who had had my laptop and actually had pride and you just have to pry it off essentially. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's an amazing time. That's awesome. Yeah. I love shit, man. I use YouTube to do a bathroom remodel. I've never done plumbing in my life. Yeah. How would I learn plumbing? Are you doing plumbing? No, I did it. You, you did plumbing. Yeah. Yeah. You sweat pipes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was cool. I mean, it was hard. Yeah. I don't Sweating think pipes ever... is weird. It, yeah. It's not as hard as you'd think. Yeah. I yeah. did it, but I, so this, oh, so, you've done it. so, you know, when I was working in my house 10 or 15 years ago, right, 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 right. YouTube was kind of, or the internet was around, but, but not anything like it is today. And I remember going to the internet and finding very little. Um, I actually went to the hardware store and bought a book on how to sweat pipes. Yeah. But looking at a tutorial in a book is nothing like, especially on YouTube, you could probably watch like 15 different dudes showing you how to sweat a pipe. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, And and so I had to... And so the the first pipe that I... Um, so when you sweat a pipe, you have to, you, it's, it's copper pipes, your regular supply pipes. And in these pipes, when you actually, you know, turn on your, your water supply, the pressure in the pipes, if there's any, any tiny little, uh, pinhole, yeah, pinhole or, or weakness in the way you join the pipes, it will fucking explode. Yeah. Or at the very least, it'll just slowly leak for yeah, the rest yeah. of its time. Right. And when you have leaking water in your house, it's just like, forget about it. You got mold at the very least. Yeah. And at worst, you've, you know, you've completely destroyed a wall and you have to tear down part of your house because of it or something. Right. And, and so, and, you know, when you sweat pipes, you often uh, sweat the pipes and then you put drywall over it. And so you can't even see. So you have to really trust. And you're dealing, you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to... um I mean, the the stuff... So I just remember you had the pipes, you cut them, and then you had to sand them to make mm-hmm. sure there's there's no kind of rough edges. You put the pipes... You put flux on, 
which is what is flux? Flux makes the solder flow. Makes the solder flow into into the joint. Into the joint. Okay, so you put flux on, uh, and then you put the you put the joints together, mm-hmm. and then you take solder, and you um, well first you heat the pipes, you right? Heat the pipe. You, you, but it's a very imprecise thing. It's like when people explain cooking to me. They're like, well, you know, salt to taste. Right. What the hell does or that mean? Or a dash of salt. Yeah, right. What's the dash? And, I, and I'm like, what? Yeah. And, you know, but that's how cooks operate. They right. kind of just intuit. Or they'll, well, cook the burger until it's done. You know, cook, cook the chicken till it's, till it's done. Sure. I'm like, how do I know? And, and how many times have I cooked? Like, I was trying to cook burgers because I got a new deck with a grill and stuff and I decided to try to venture into burgers. Nice. And the second time I cooked burgers, you know, it looked good to me and then pulled them off the thing and then cut into them and it was, they were like raw in the yeah. middle. Yeah. Just completely yeah. raw. And undelicious at that point. And then you put them back on the fucking yep. grill. Yep. Anyway, so I would, so in the books it would, you know, it would sort of say you had to do it this amount of time. But the thing that they didn't tell me was this is the episode where we talk about sweating pies. But, or me not knowing how to do it. This is a Seattle Psychology in Seattle podcast. But, but you tell me. But you tell me about this, okay? Sure. So the flame. So you have a you have a flamethrower yeah. thingy, a torch, torch, and um, you have to. There's there's different zones on the flame. So there's like there's hot hotter zones and colder zones of the flame of that's the coming flame. out of the torch. That's right. And so you have to find there's a sweet spot in the flame that you got to get right on that pipe. Right. And for and then that tells you like how much time you need to leave it on there for the flux to heat up and for the pipe to heat up so that when you solder it, the solder just melts because the pipe is so hot. hot and it gets drawn in capillary action. Yeah. Capillary action. Yeah. And 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 it depends on which kind of gas you use on the torch. Ugh. You use map gas or acetylene and they burn at different temperatures so the pipe heats different and you can't learn it from a book. Right. You can't. Well I didn't. Well, what I learned from trial and error, because yeah. there was this one, there was this one pipe that was, it was actually coming off of my, um, my hot, my hot water heater. And I, uh, probably tried 15 times before I got it right, you know? And then one of the times I did it, I think I finally got it. And then the next day I noticed it had a very small leak, you know, it was like dripping, yeah, probably like one drip every hour. Right. So I just put a towel around it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, I'm not doing this again, uh-huh. you know. Um, but man, frustrating because you know you got a hacksaw, more pipe, more pipe, flux, flux, fit. heat, yep, solder didn't work. Turn on the water. There's a massive leak. Uh, gotta do it again. Yep. And. Um, Anyway, so yeah, that's why I wish it w- I was a kid today because I would learn how to f- sweat pipes, you know, so much easier. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's talk about other things not related to psychology. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. So let's talk about some other uh, articles here. Okay, this is a Wall Street Journal article. Did you want to talk about membership in the podcast? Oh, sure. Become a patron of the podcast. Go to patreon.com. Or else. Or else, I don't know. I might come screw up your plumbing. (laughs) Uh, The Wall Street Journal. Will majoring in psychology make you better off? The government wants to know. Huh. 
What do you think about this article? Title. I doubt it. <laughs> so what this article has to do with is essentially the there's this notion out there, particularly among Republicans that or conservatives, that um, one conservatives in general have a cultural movement against intellectualism. One, uh-huh. two, they have a cultural movement against college campuses. Oh yeah, and th- and three, um, they have a thing against like government subsidizing you know, education because they don't want, they don't want money spent on, uh, anything <laughs> that seems unnecessary to them. You know what I mean? So like grants for tuition and stuff like that. Yeah. And loan you know, forgiveness or, or mm-hmm. interest rate help or a state oh, uh-huh. state, you know, cause state funds pay for, um, state uh, education right. institutions. And so anyway, huh. it seems very um, short sighted. Yeah. And so there's two forces here that I, that I, on the other, but on the other side, I think there's a legitimate thing because I feel like there were times when I'd be talking to some young people and they would be getting a degree in like, you know, comparative histories of ideas or a lit degree or something. uh, And they would have no idea what they were going to do with that degree. Now, if that's your thing, great. You know, there's nothing wrong with going, I want a lit degree and I know it's useless or I know it's not likely to do anything for me. And I don't even want to work really in copy editing or anything. Um, and, but I just really love comparative history ideas or I just really love, you know, this subject and, you know, maybe it'll pan out and maybe it won't. I don't know. Think great. But there's a lot of people who, are in college or going to college or have kids who are going to college where they just have this notion like, well, they're, they're at the university of Washington and they're getting a four year degree. They're on their way, you know, that their career, you know, they are like, they're going to have a wonderful career because of this. And then they graduate and they find out, Oh, this degree means nothing in the workplace. Like nothing, (laughs) you know, unless you're, you know, particularly gearing towards, particular jobs and and or they find those jobs that the good degree is headed towards and they're like i don't like these jobs these jobs don't pay very much or yeah. they're not really the kind of thing i, I like studying this but I, I don't think i like doing it you right know? and so there's this what i perceive to be a lack of education or understanding or planning around like the bigger picture yeah you know like why are you getting this degree mm-hmm. what does this degree give you well so i don't think there's anything wrong with that um, I, I think that that's rational thinking, and I think it's something that's kind of missing in our culture. Because there's a lot of people just like, just get your kid into a four-year college, and you're good. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they focus on. You know, just get them a four-year degree from Yale, and they'll, they're golden. It's like, nope, actually not. You know, like it really depends on the subject and um, the bigger picture and all that kind of stuff. Sure. So, I mean, what was your BA in? Psychology. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to be a therapist all the way back then? Yes. Yeah. When I figured out what I wanted to major in, that's what I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So it made but sense. I thought it was going to be kids, hmm. which I discovered I, by doing, I don't actually like working with children. Like kids, but don't like doing therapy with When kids. did you do that? When did I do what? With kids. When I got out of college, I worked in a psychiatric hospital with very young children, 4 to 13, and also at a runaway shelter in central Pennsylvania. And then I moved here. And worked with adults, discovered that's what I wanted to do, but then in graduate school got an internship and needed hours, and so worked in the child and family department of the clinic where I was working, 
and at the CPC. Yeah. Oh. And then got hired in the child and family department. Oh yeah. Because that's who they that's where they had a job. I remember that because yeah. you and I went to graduate school right. together and I, I was a trained family therapist. You were. And you were not a trained family therapist. You were oh. a trained adult counselor. Yes. Or individual counselor. Well, but yeah, but that's what they do as adults. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then I was ironic that you got a job in the child and family department. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, at the time I needed a job and I didn't even have to interview. The boss just walked in the, my office one day, shut the door when nobody was there and said, just letting you know, we're going to hire you. Oh. Yeah. I think I remember how much you earned per hour. Do you remember? Oh yeah. 1140. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was 11. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got a, when I got hired just like a few months later, cause I graduated a little later than you did. Yeah. Um, I got 13, I think it was 1301 or something yeah. per hour. And you, you were jealous of me. Of course I was. <laughs> it's just so funny. And actually among our friends, they were all jealous too. You know, yeah. it was just like, Whoa, $13 an hour. You know, um, when I tell my students that what my hope is, is that my, I'm trying to tell them that because I want them to know that the, the jobs are getting offered today are actually pretty good because they're, Sometimes they're offered twenty two twenty five or something an hour, but what they say, what the only thing they say to me is, "Well, you're super old, so it's completely different now." You know what I mean? But <laughs> I can't imagine that inflation over twenty years can be that great. You know what I mean? Right? That would be like double. Yeah. So it's well, not quite, but but close. to them, you know, it that's the younger students. Anyway, so this article, this Wall Street Journal article, kind of goes into. The government and Trump administration, you know, Department of Education are looking into holding universities and programs accountable for the return on investment. So this is where, and there's a graph in the Wall Street Journal uh, in terms of return on investment. So, so in terms of like how much did the degree cost mm-hmm. and how much money do you get out of the degree, right? So... If the degree costs fifty thousand dollars, and you get a and on on average of the graduates, how much do they earn uh, the year after they graduate and beyond? You know what I mean? Oh, and so it's like debt to income ratio is is what they call it. That's going to vary so widely depending on did I go to a community college? Did I go to Yale? Right. I mean, well, that, that and the psych- and the degree. You know, like for instance, this this graph it has. Computer science uh, is one of the better returns on investment, right? Which you know, of course, makes sense because there's a lot of freaking money in computer stuff, and so you know, and everyone knows that. Um, and jobs e- are plentiful, I think. Right, uh, economics, business are better, uh, and at the bottom you have psychology. <laughs> is it really at the bottom? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only five. I don't know how many other oh, topics okay. they did, but of the five that they looked at here, psychology was. So, computer science has a debt to income ratio of five to five percent. So, I don't know what the, exactly that means. Uh, I don't know exact, but uh, but anyway, uh, psychology is ten percent. Oh, so the um, the but so here's the thing, like. One, we're talking about bachelor's degrees, and a bachelor's in psychology isn't going to give you anything. No. You know, it'd be like saying a bachelor's in medicine, you know, the debt, it's like, computer science, you don't need a master's in computer science to work in computer science. No. 
um, you know, in business, you don't need a master's in business to, to, to start working in business and doing, doing well, you know, because those tend to be more like vocational programs. Well, and they're, they're simpler too. You're learning the skills that a person would need in a job in psychology. You're not learning anything. No. that you would need to actually do any kind of job. Yeah, I mean, the way that we design the education, and maybe we could do it differently, but the way that we design the education system is the the BA in psychology is a survey of everything related to psychology. It's mm-hmm. like it's not focused. Mm-hmm. You're, you're studying rat psychology. You're studying abnormal psychology. You're studying personality, the history. You're studying research, kind of. Kind of. Uh, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's like everything. And then when you go to your master's degree, that's when you really focus on becoming a uh, how to do the job of of the clinician job. Right. And so, so anyway, this so my overall thesis about this movement is to make you know programs quote unquote accountable is that it requires. So as a as a program director, I was a program director for a while, and now I'm I'm not a program director anymore, but I still feel the pressure is. There's accrediting bodies are forcing universities to publish data of various different numbers that they have to publish. Okay. And although on some level I think that this is good because it's like, look, you can't as a business just claim that all your people get jobs or that your university is really effective at this or that. You know, you really have to kind of prove it, which, you know, I get. But what it does is they they the people who force us to report numbers don't understand the nuances. For example, um, one of the numbers that we are forced to publish is our graduation rate. So of the amount of people who entered our program this year, how many of them eventually graduate within a certain amount of years? Well, at in my program, it almost always is somewhere around 80%. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So does that does that number surprise you? Yeah, it seems low. It seems low. Why does it seem low to you? Because I don't remember anybody from school not finishing. Right. Because it's not hard to graduate from our program. Yeah. It's it's not a hard program. I mean, it's hard, but it's not hard to get through it, you know what I mean? No, like you, you might you might fail a class or two at the most, but there's a way for you to get up to speed. You know, someone will help you. They'll coach you. You'll take another professor. You'll get it right the second time or something. If you put in reasonable effort, you'll be fine. Yeah. Put yeah. in reasonable effort. You'll be, you'll be fine. It's yeah. not like you're in some high competitive law school or something. It's hard and it, it's stressful. Yeah. But it's mostly self-imposed. It's not intellectually rigorous. Like, it doesn't require, you know, you don't got to be Stephen fucking Hawking to, do, to learn that stuff and right. be able to. But it does require... Um, something of you. Right. You do have to work hard. Anyway, yeah. the point is, is that when you hear 80%, you're like, well, that's surprising. That means one out of every five students did not graduate. Yeah. So implication is, which, which what most people will interpret that as, is that either one in five were kicked out mm-hmm. or one in five couldn't make it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they... They just they were either removed or they just couldn't make it and they gave up out of out of like exasperation or something. Right. That is not the case. The the, the twenty believe me and I I keep track of all this data. Right. These data. The vast majority of that twenty percent, they just dropped out because they weren't ready for graduate school, not because it was too hard, and not because they were kicked out because 
their lifestyle changed. They moved. They got married. They had a kid. Oh, oh they oh. Uh, they got a new job. Oh, it's so misleading. Or they changed programs. So that's another thing. So if someone started, so you were in CMHC, I was I was CFT. Right. If you had moved from CMHC to CFT, even though you're basically in the same school, yeah, um, you just it's just a slight difference in some of the classes you take. Yeah. You have now withdrawn from that program. You, you're now one of those twenty percent who, uh-huh. who, who have who have not graduated. And do I not show up in the other program then, in terms of the statistics? You do, um, as someone who has started and will graduate. Right. So you're sort of double dipped into two uh, programs. No, that's really misleading. Yeah. So it's really misleading. Um, not a disaster, but you know, w- when you when you look at the so they publish all this stuff side by side. So some universities they they graduate hundred percent. And what I'm thinking is like. Well, they must be a lot of young people who don't have other things in their lives that will interfere with their uh, planning. You know what I mean? Right. Um, some people run out of money. You know what I mean? Like there's lots of reasons, but it doesn't have anything to do with what people would think. Here's another number. When you Google Antioch University Seattle on Google, you just type in Antioch University Seattle, Google publishes this graduation rate um, on their, uh, you know how like, Google has this automatic data. Like if you Google like, um, you know, Hugo weaving, automatically this little, this little, um, oh yeah, this little synopsis of his life. You know who, right. what his birthday is, what yeah. you know who he is, a little snapshot of his picture. It, you don't actually have to go to Wikipedia. Like Google compiles info. Well, they well now for whatever because I had to Google uh, my university to find our address because I can never remember our address, and so he was in Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Was he? Yeah, I know. Trippy. Yeah. And also The Matrix. That's right. So, you know. Agent Smith. Uh, he's Sorry. in a lot of movies. Yeah. He's great. Um, and he's in an upcoming movie, too. I think he plays an English guy. But anyway, because um, he's Australian, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So uh, they, um, I Googled, and this, this, this number comes up, and it says, graduation rate for Antioch University Seattle, which is my campus, right. 13%. Thirteen percent. That's what it said. That's trippy. So anyone who Google's our campus, the first thing that they will see on Google is thirteen percent of our students graduate. That's amazing. And so immediately I was like, "What?" And I emailed our provost and I was like, "Did you know this?" And he's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Are you going to do anything about it? Because it makes us look like a. I don't know. It makes us look." terrible in so many ways yeah and it can't be true because right. i'm like there's no possible way that 13 percent of our students graduate and so what he so and i worked with the marketing person too and they they said well the reason why uh it's 13 percent is because one they're only focused on the bachelor's degree program uh-huh. so any of university of seattle has a ba completion program uh, most of our degrees on our campus are graduate and yeah. doctorate, you know what I mean? So right. a master's and doctorate. And so we have this small BA program. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think it probably has like a hundred students or something. And so there's some kind of weird statistical uh, measurement thing that basically makes it so of the students who enter the BA program, the, the amount of people who graduate in the time span or something, it ends up being 13%. But the vast majority of the people who enter the BA program actually complete the program. So there's some kind of 
because of the way the government asks yeah. us to, uh, and the crediting bodies ask us to, you know, uh, tabulate these figures, it makes us look like we're only graduating 13%. One, again, it's only looking at the BA program, which is one of, you know, uh, it's the smaller of the five programs we have on our campus. You know what I mean? So, so that's just another example of like, and they won't budge. You know, you can't go to Google and say, you can't go to the accrediting body and say like, you have to, you have to be different with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, another, just one last thing is that Antioch University, our programs were so big and we're so work older adult, adult learner oriented that we let people go at their own pace. Right. Right. So we, we don't require you to go at a certain pace. Other universities do. The reason why they make you go at their pace is because it's better for them money wise. Because they, if 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 you let take it from me as someone who planned a whole program, if you let people go at your own pace, at their own pace, you never know how many students are going to sign up for a class in a given quarter. And so, some quarters you're going to have a class that you need to offer that only has like five people in it, and you got to run it. You know what I mean? You, you got to pay the professor, and it, and so you're not you're not profiting very much. In fact, you might be losing money on the class. Another quarter, you might have 30 people sign up for the same class that only lets 20 people take it. So now you have a bunch of people on the wait list. And so um, that's the problem with that. And we could make it easier if we forced everyone to take classes at a certain pace. But what that doesn't do, it doesn't allow the students to go at their own pace, doesn't allow them to work or have kids or you know, have a family and this kind of stuff. Right. And so we want to be good for the students. So this is a service to the students. You well, know? it's also your population. And it's also our population. But, you know, there, there, have been, there have been often on talks about making it a cohort model. Sure. And there's always pushback because we don't want to ruin people's lives. We want yeah. to be student-centered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so our accrediting body asks us to... Um, and and what we say is the average amount is three years because so the you know we take that we take the numbers and we figure out okay you, you can take between two years as the minimum you know if you go super fast and and but you have to do it in six years we say so past six years you're withdrawn so you get two to six years the average student is three years and so we ad, we advertise that we say you can take two you can take six but the average student takes three well our crediting body asks us to tell them, which they publish, and we actually have to publish on our website, the percentage of students who graduate within three years. Three years, yeah. But that's not a measurement of our program. It's not. But to other programs, it is, right? Mm -hmm. Because if their program is a cohort model for three years, and then you ask them how many of your students are actually graduating in three years, then it is somewhat of an indication of like how good of a product you're providing. Because if like you know, 10% of your students are graduating within the allotted advertised time, then you're not advertising very well or your program is broken somehow. Right. But by asking us to, to do that, it, it again is completely misleading yeah. because what needs to be said there is like the, if any students are taking longer than three years, it's because they chose to, because we want them to make a choice. Yeah. It's not because our program is broken if anything, it's because we're better of a program than other programs because we let students decide how fast they want to go. Right. And we're flexible. And we've, we've created a system where it allows for that flexibility, whereas other programs haven't, created, haven't figured out a way to make that flexible for them. I mean, other programs do, but many programs don't. Yeah. And so it's just a lot of stuff like that. You know what I mean? And so this Wall Street Journal is looking at psychology programs as opposed to computer science bachelor's degrees 
and they're looking at it and they're like, uh, oh, obviously psychology is a bad return on investment. And therefore, the message is you should not get a psychology degree. And the other message here is that this is that the government should be cracking down on programs that have bad returns on investment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's that's the message. Or they should be like penalizing yeah. monetarily programs who don't have a good return on investment. So and that's it, that's a big message. They have a point on the one hand, but it, they don't have a way to measure properly. Right. Right, because you're, it's apples and oranges. You know, For people who are getting a computer science degree, I'm just going to take a guess. Most of them are trying to get a good, high-paying job. And they're not looking for like um, self-actualization. Uh, yeah. There are some people getting a psychology degree. They're looking for basically an education-slash-therapy situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what they're getting out of it. Self-development as opposed to career or job. Right. Yeah. They're just like... I just really want to learn about psychology. Right. You know, I really want to learn about music. You know, I'm, I know I'm not going to make any money off of music, but right. I really love music and I like composition or I like this and that. I like art history. I know I'm not going to work for a museum, but I want to get a degree in art history because right. I just love that. You right. Know? And, but we, that has to be, you know, balanced with the fact that I think our culture doesn't pr- educate people on how to prepare and how, you know, how to really own that notion of just like, I love art history. I'm probably not going to work in art history, but I like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I worry that something's going to get lost if we say, no, 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 if you're not going to get a job, then it doesn't, it's not worth studying. So we're not going to have history because not everybody's going to be a professor. Exactly. You know, it's really actually terrifying. Right. Because yeah. say you're, you're going to eventually be an accountant uh, or I don't know. Say you're going to eventually, um, well, say you're going to be eventually be a therapist. Sure. You know, many of you you have a psychology degree in your bachelor's. I have a business degree. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, along the way of my business degree, I took a lot of random courses because that's what a liberal arts degree does right. for you. Right. Business degree technically isn't liberal arts, but UW is a liberal arts bachelor's program, and so I just got randomly exposed to a lot of liberal arts kind of classes, and. The things that I learned along the way were things that I didn't know I needed to learn. Yeah. And expanded my mind, you know, and helped me to, you know, be on the journey that I am today. And and that's part of the reason for this education, you know, and return on investment. If that's the only thing, you know, if we're all little Trumpites thinking about like, you know, uh, profit and stuff like right. that, my God, you know. Um, the other thing is is that the the other detail here is that they talk about how one one of the big sort of hatred bigoted statements that uh, people on the right or just shall we say like educate or people who hate colleges will comment on um, uh, how bad colleges are is they will say tuition has been growing uh, very much in the past you know thirty years. Have you heard that? that statement before i have yes you know let's say like uh it's way out of proportion with inflation right okay uh what do you think they're implying when they say that i don't know college is expensive yeah yeah but but what's their what's their point do you know what i mean oh the point might be this is too much money it's top heavy you know we're saddling kids with debt or families with debt or yeah um this is not a good in, uh, financial investment and colleges are ripping everybody off yeah i think that's the message is it's top heavy and colleges are ripping people off they're yeah. they're uh 
it's absurd to say out loud, but they're a bunch of money grubbing profiteers that are just like squeezing, you know, every bit of juice out of these kids because they love to drive Porsches. You know, how many professors do you know have expensive cars? Um, so, uh, so I think that's the implication. Um, but why, if that isn't what's really happening, which I'm here to say it's not, why do you think, because it is data, you know, why is tuition going up, do you think? I don't have any idea. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. It's because professional standards have increased over time. So uh, 30 years ago, so there's two things. One is, is, is I can talk very, um, with a lot of detail and knowledge around master's degrees. Sure. Um, which are different from bachelor's degrees. Bachelor's degrees tuition has also gone up, which I think has to do with just greater standardization, honestly. I think, it, you know, 30 years ago, the quality of your education, I don't think, was as good as it is today. Um, also, the publisher parish thing is also another issue that causes things to get expensive. But anyway... But I can talk in detail about graduate school. So in our profession, a master's level counseling or therapy degree, when uh, 30, 40 years ago, uh, guess how long it took to get a master's in psychology? So, you know, you and I graduated with a master's in psychology uh, 20 years ago, uh, and it took you six quarters, which is a year and a half. That's correct. At full-time Oh, yeah. Full-time classes. Yeah. Uh, which probably ended up costing you, tuition-wise, probably like fifteen grand. No, no. It was 3500 a quarter back then for full-time students, so that times whatever. So 721. So 21. 21 grand plus, and then I, I borrowed money to live on. But yeah, 21 right. grand in tuition. Okay. So it must have cost me like 25 grand or yeah. something, 27 or something. And so, um, so... Uh, your degree could could have been done in a year and a half. My degree could have been done in a year and a half and a quarter, so one point seven five. Right. Um, how much do you think it? How long do you think it took? Like ten years before we were in school. I don't even know. A year. Like a, really? Yeah. So to get the mat. So when you and I were in school, mid nineties, wow. it was year and a half, two years. Uh, a, a ten years before us, it was like I think it was just three quarters. I'm not quite sure. Maybe four. Wow. Um, why? Because the, the, to become a professional, the standards were actually non-existent back then. Right. You, you could be a 13-year-old high school dropout and claim that you're a psychotherapist and have a private practice and legitimately see clients. As long, and then eventually you had to take a four-hour age training, you know what I mean? Oh, right. I remember that. Register yeah. as a counselor. Right, right. So um, by the time we, be, we entered the profession, they were, they were gearing up for... They and they had certified. They had done certification. You could still be a registered counselor. Registered counselor yeah. Today, you can't be a counselor or therapist unless you're licensed, and uh, the state regulates that and says you have to take a certain amount of classes. So laws dictate that all programs need to uphold to a certain level. So so now, as a result, in 2018, uh, the minimum amount of time it takes to get through a program is is two years, or our program is two years. The CMHC program is more like two and a half years. No kidding. Yeah. So uh, accredit- So right. So back in the day when you and I were in school, the marriage and family therapy accreditors were acquiring a little bit more than the counseling association. That's true. And then, um, and then as time, and then every once in a while, because they're sort of out of sync, the counseling accreditors will up the ante and they'll get, they'll become more 
rigorous than the marriage and family therapy program and vice versa. Right now we're at a point where the, um, where KCREP is requiring to, to in essence, uh, a higher standard than marriage and family therapy, but it won't be long before marriage and family therapy will up its standards and it'll be higher. You know, it just, it just keeps going up and up. So, so, uh, right now, uh, if it's more realistic for counseling people to take two and a half years, whereas 30 years ago, it only took a year. Well, guess what? It's going to cost more to get through school now. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so tuition for the degree is going to be, you know, independent of inflation is going to be like 300% that of what it was before, just because of the amount of classes that the state is requiring, which is a good thing. Yeah. To take classes for a year and then you become a clinician, that's not responsible. It's quick and dirty when we did it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So... I mean, it's still pretty quick and dirty, in my opinion. Yeah, and so in the future, it'll be even less quick and dirty and more expensive. And so when they publish these uh, these stats, you know, they'll say that tuition has grown an average of six percent a year since 1990, nearly triple the rate of overall inflation. I just think, like, well, that's at least in my world, that's because of increased standards, which is a good thing. Yeah, you know. Uh, so that's just another gripe I have with all this, with, with this, this, these data, yeah. uh, reporting issues that, um, th- these attacks on, cause the, the whole thing to me is like, again, how many college professors do you know are, are driving around in super expensive cars? How many college professors do you know are earning their salary at the university is, you know, more than $120,000, you know what I mean? Or even more than $100,000, you know, know what what you guys make professors make, uh, not that much, Uh especially compared to how much they can make in the private world. For example, for me, the amount of time I spend at Antioch, I can make, so essentially it's a, it's essentially a full-time job. At least that's what it's on paper. Uh Um, or sell, we say four days a week. I can earn the same amount of money in one day of private practice as I can in four days of being a professor. Right. So it's not, so that's, oh, yeah. that nobody should, goes into it for the dough. Right. That should tell you something. Yeah. It's not as if, so the money is going towards the product. It's not going towards some uh, group of investors or CEOs or anything. Right. You know what I mean? There are some inequities. I'm not going to say that there's not like there are some, universities that have CEOs and administrators that are earning way too much money. But, but when you compare that to the private sector, you know, it's like there are situations where you have people who are earning what most people would be to just be like ludicrous salaries, you know what I mean? And they keep raising prices anyway. So what's, what's tuition now? Um, for a full-time student is somewhere around $700 a credit. So that would be, that would be um, that would be twenty one hundred per class. So you remember tuition as how much per quarter? Thirty five. Thirty five. So now it's probably six plus thousand yeah. a quarter. Yeah, could be as so it could be as much as could be as much as eight or nine. And then you have books too, which right. are expensive, much more expensive now than they were back in the day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in one quarter you could conceivably Is that right? Do I have that right? That seems crazy to me. So it's right around double. 
per yeah. quarter would it cost us? Ten, 20 years ago, yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. And I can tell you that my university, no one is rolling in dough. So no, no, no. Of the not. money is going, and our and our building is, we moved to a new building, but sure. it's half the size. Yeah. Why? Because we're trying to save money. <laughs> right. You know, like our programs are getting bigger, and we moved to a building half the size because of money, you know? Yeah. And so uh, no one's rolling in dough. The no, no, professors no. particularly. So the fact that things are going up is because... Um, of of some other factor, you know, um, what would it be? Again, I guess just inflation and also like, actually, I, one thing I think it probably is a result of, if I thought about it, is that 20 years ago, the people who worked at Antioch, I think, had a lower standard of what they th- thought they deserved in terms of salary. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they had a, I think they had a low self-esteem 20 years ago uh-huh. in terms of like what they were worth. Uh-huh. And I think today that low self-esteem is is not as bad. What does an instructor make per class? So a, an adjunct, yeah. I believe, makes two, two to 2,500 uh, for teaching a class, I believe. I think it was like half or less than half. No, oh, yeah. When I, was, when I first started as adjunct, it was $1,000. 1000 bucks. yeah. Yeah, I, I, got, I, I got paid $1,000 to teach a three-credit class. For a quarter. For a quarter, yeah. So you made... Three hundred dollars a month, yeah, for all the planning and yeah, it was the time and I, I'm a I'm a figure figure outer and I remember figuring that I earned something like three dollars an hour yeah. when when I started out as an adjunct yeah um and so I was like oh I get it you teach because you love it which is why I quit teaching a couple times because mm-hmm. there were times when I was like I really like this but there's not a lot of incentive to continue going you know right. and there are some bad parts of being a professor you know yeah um so now you know full-time faculty make anywhere from uh like 50 to 70 or something like that um depending on their rank but still you know uh it's it's, it's good but yeah. again if 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 I, if you and I had full time private practice and really like didn't take any pro bono and didn't, you know, if you didn't have your DBT group, I'm guessing that kind of impacts things. Oh yeah, um, you could conceivably earn like at least two hundred thousand dollars a year if if you if you just really went for it. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, if you're going from say reasonably earning one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in private practice and you're going down to to fifty thousand dollars a year, you know, it's you're doing you're doing it because you love it, and so there must be a lot of really great things about being a professor, sure. which, which there are, yeah. And a lot of people are making those choices, right? And and I and I make that choice every day, and I enjoy it, yeah. But the point is, it's like if tuition is going up, it's not because us professors are you know suddenly rolling in, right? Right. It's know. not like there's a bunch of Ivy League or Ivory Tower intellectuals who are like, gimme, 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 gimme. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not happening. We're so rich, right? You know, it's like we're still we're still penny pinching every step of the way. You know, when you think about it, like in the bigger picture, let's say that the Wall Street Journal article has this extraordinary influence, and and so as a result of that, there's a crackdown on how education goes and how the government and how we as a culture or society support it. You're just making rich people 
they're going to be the ones that can afford an education, the ones that are going to study things like art history or philosophy or whatever it is that, you know, is not on the menu of like, this is the okay choices. And you're creating intellectual snobbism. What do you mean? Well, you know, who's who, in 40 years, then who's going to be the people who are studying history? Right. They're going to be rich people because they're the only people who can afford. Because if you're a poor person, your choice has just been limited to whatever's on the list. Right. Yeah. And so you're creating this divide. Um, and Which kind of exists, if you think about okay, it. Okay, yeah. You're sort of widening the divide. Yeah, it does exist. I guess if we had worse. It, yeah, it gets worse. But the thing is, is like whatever's important in our knowledge of... I'm just going to stick with history for a sec. Whatever's important in that, it gets... Um, it gets it gets um, um, sidelined to this one population that's easy to dismiss, as opposed to hey, we ought to learn from where we've been, mm-hmm. and we're not going to be able to. Right, exactly. That one of the major reasons for going to college that is not being recognized yeah. in discourses like this is to help you to understand how to be a citizen and how to make choices within society, and to understand history doesn't actually give you any return on investment no. unless you're a history professor, I guess. Sort of. Uh, or, I, I don't know, or you're courses. writing books on history or something. It'd right. have to be pretty specific. But I think we can all agree that our society, American society, would be better if everyone understood the Vietnam War. Yeah. If everyone understood the history uh, of what led up, you know, of, of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all the movements of the 60s, if everyone understood that pretty well, uh, I don't think anyone could disagree that today's society would be a little better. We'd have a bit bit better understanding of jingoism, nationalism, war, uh, arrogance, American exceptionalism, uh, PTSD, the costs of war, the realities of war, the the hubris of of politicians, oh, uh, the notions that protesting against a war means that you hate, uh, you know, um, veterans, that you're not supporting the troops. Like, no, you know, like we learned all those lessons in the '60s and '70s, and we were uh, not only humiliated on the national stage because of our hubris, but we killed tens of thousands of our own people and hundreds of thousands of people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia just because we couldn't... Not only... There's a documentary on the Vietnam on Netflix. It's amazing. Have you watched it? Mm -mm. It's amazing. Um, It is a serious deep dive, man. I mean, they go like month by month through the Vietnam War. And it really gives you the sense of like the, the slow progression, the slog that, you know, Vietnam was... But the, and maybe you know this, but like McNamara and all those guys, Johnson, they knew that the Vietnam War was unwinnable early, like in 66 or 67 or something. We were in Vietnam till what, 73 or two or something. Yeah. And, uh, and most of the people that we killed and most of our young men who died, uh, and by the way, they were most uh, a vast majority outnumbered proportionally poor black men, yeah. by the way, yeah. which is abhorrent. Yeah. Um, and uh, and meanwhile, they're back in the United States, you know, like uh, we have no rights in the United States. Why would we go over there? And so uh, 
most of our dead and most people we killed were after the point that they absolutely were fairly certain there was no way we we're going to win it because they realized that the Vietnam people were so dedicated. Even the South Vietnamese people were, you know, and the stuff that we did, you know, just like killing grandmas and kids and just burning their houses down and, you know, j just rape. And just, it was, um, to, to not, to, to say to a person who is it, just bringing up the question as to whether or not we should be in Afghanistan uh, and to call that person unpatriotic or to call that person a communist or to call that person a wuss or to call that person, you know, I don't know, un-American or something is to not understand history yeah, and to not and to really not understand the Vietnam War. <laughs> You know, like there were lessons learned. And uh, so, right, to bolster your point of like um, just focusing on return on investment for a history degree is wrongheaded. Well, calling the return on investment monetary only right. is pretty scary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The if we really looked at it sort of. Uh, we'd have to make some guesses, but the return on, if we could, if we could teach all half of Americans, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on in depth about the Vietnam war, our return on investment for, you know, that as that generation ages and votes and makes decisions to stay out of expensive wars that kill people unnecessarily, I would say that's a huge return on investment. That's a big return. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Hopefully this hour was a good return on your investment. <laughs> Nicely put. Even though if you're not a patron, you didn't pay a single cent to listen to this. Well. So by definition, you got if you got just one cent's worth of return on investment, then you won. Congratulations. Right? <laughs> Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.